0: Hearing Witness, part of the Racial Reckoning Project, is a reflective dive into the week's events unfolding in this season of racial upheaval and, we hope, change. Each week, we will compare notes from the week's events, connect the dots to past and present experiences and racial patterns in America, and connect with community members from many different perspectives who are themselves trying to make sense of this moment. I'm Anthony Galloway, Executive Director of the Arts Us Center for the African Diaspora, and I'm Georgia Fords, an independent journalist. This show is a production of Racial Reckoning, The Arc of Justice, a journalism project created and supported by Ampers, diverse radio for Minnesota's communities, in partnership with KMOJ Radio and the Minnesota Humanities Center. Each week I'm Bearing Witness, as we chronicle what's happening in our community and check in with community members, one of the things that has been consistent is that we are never going along without yet again a reminder of not only the inequities of our situation, but the many challenges that we have to face while still compounding what's happening in community. This week is unfortunately no different from, um, important cases in Colorado uh, with police and officer-involved shootings there to the continuation of the case here against the men who uh, were responsible for the murder of George Floyd. And, you know, we covered the Chauvin case, and now we're moving into a space where uh, the other officers are coming into their hearings and their trials. And on top of all of that, we have even new decisions in uh, the Mohamed Noor case Also here in Minnesota, we continue to be an epicenter um, that many hadn't talked about until it bubbled over. This continues to be the case here in Minnesota. So, Miss Georgia, I want to check in with you. What have you been covering this week as we continue to, to look this moment directly in the eye?
1: Anthony, the Muhammad Noor conviction being overturned was big news uh, for those who have been in this fight for social justice. And the reason being is because Noor's case was also used as a legal precedent for Chauvin's third degree murder charge. So. His conviction being overturned has broader implications. Not only now does that mean if Mohammed Noor was charged and convicted of third-degree murder and second-degree manslaughter, now that his third-degree murder charge is overturned, the sentencing is going to change. He's going to be resentenced based on now that only other charge that he was convicted of, which is a lower charge, which means his sentence will likely be reduced. Uh, When I had the chance to discuss this with legal experts, I was informed that his 12 year sentence now could be reduced to three or four years. Uh, Some people saying he might even get out as soon as October because he's already served a few years, right? But what does that mean for Chauvin's appeal? Chauvin appealed his conviction right away. And we know that the third degree murder charge was only reinstated days before the trial began. If you remember, uh, originally, he did have that third degree charge. It was removed. And then the prosecutors fought and fought and fought, appealed all the way to the Minnesota Supreme Court, asking that that third degree murder charge be reinstated under the context of Noor's conviction as a legal precedent. But now that that's been overturned, what does that mean for Chauvin's case? What does that mean for the third degree charge that was brought forth on Chauvin based on Noor's conviction? So it has broader implications. It absolutely... Um, can affect chauvin's appeal uh we're, we're thinking that now that Noor's third degree has been overturned it's likely that chauvin's could be overturned as well however for chauvin, he still was convicted on uh, other charges, some being more severe. So it's not going to impact his sentencing the same way it would Noor's. But this is definitely a huge development in these cases. And while people know that these cases are very, very different, what Mohammed Noor did, uh, you know, and in, in how Justine Ruschek lost her life is very different than what Derek Chauvin did and how George Floyd lost his life as well, but. Uh, they're connected by the court systems. And, uh, you know, unless you're an attorney or you cover a lot of trials like myself as a journalist, you know, those technicalities, I think, can be confusing for people.
0: Now, this becomes, uh, this This is a really interesting uh, intersection in, in, in and in point of, of contention for folks in community because folks were already saying that, you know, nor as, as the uh, first officer for many folks is, um, for many folks in our community's recollection to be convicted in an unarmed killing in this way, there was already a thought that this was going to be different because Muhammad Noor was black. Um, and so that, and so connecting that between what happened there and what happened with, with the Chauvin trial, is there concern? And I think, I think you alluded to this a little bit, but I just want to want to clarify, is there concern amongst community members that somehow this will be used to unravel um, the progress that folks feel had been made by the conviction of Derek Shaw.
1: It absolutely is a concern. Uh, It it could reduce his sentencing. However, I've heard from other legal experts who have said because he was convicted on a more serious charge, his sentencing was based on that, that it potentially won't affect his his sentencing. Uh, So we'll have to see how the judge... Uh, looks at all of this information and we will also have to see if he wins his appeal. But they're definitely, even though they're very different cases, they're connected based on legal technicalities. Uh, The fact that Mohammed Noor's conviction was a precedent that laid the groundwork and the foundation for third degree murder charges even being brought against Chauvin, they're definitely connected in uh, in the legal world. Uh, but what that means for sentencing, we're going to have to continue and, and follow the developments in the courtroom and see what the judges decide. I think it's going to be up to their discretion, ultimately, if it affects his sentencing. What I will say is that the federal trial, right, so there's the state cases, which mm-hmm. Chauvin was found guilty on his state charges. The other state court um, state cases with the other three officers is set to begin in March, 2022. And meanwhile, the federal trial is beginning to to get underway. There's been a lot of preliminary hearings. The most recent one this past week on, on last Tuesday, the four officers actually pled not guilty to the federal charges. They've been Um, charged with violating the civil rights of George Floyd. Chauvin is also facing some other additional federal charges uh, due to other cases, other incidences that he's had uh, with other complainants. But they've all pleaded not guilty. And uh, we'll, we'll have to continue to follow that as well to see you know, what the Department of Justice brings forth as evidence to convict them on on those charges of vi- violating George Floyd's civil rights.
0: So, you know, one of the one of the things that um, is essential for. All of all that you're you're covering and talking about, and you and you spoke to the the coming trial of the of the next officers, which is our next big 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 coverage point that'll happen in March. But we are seeing that that there is movement. There can be this sense that there we're in a space of pushback and and kind of derailing this this movement for reckoning and justice. But we are seeing um, some tangible results. Colorado's attorney general um, issued a scathing report um, about Aurora Police Department in Colorado's. Um, uh, policing and treatment of citizens in that area er, uh, in that area because of the death of Elijah McClain. Um, Mm -hmm. He calls their policing racially biased. um, And this is something that is not, (laughs) that's not an easy thing to get to and to come to. And so we're seeing some really interesting movements in different parts of the country in this regard. Um, I'm curious, just, just, you know, as a a final point on on this for me um, is are you are you getting a sense as you can stay connected with folks in community? Because we have the other officers to try. We also have um, the murder of Dante Wright, the officer involved in that, um, to, and then Dante Smith. We've got a whole lot of other folk areas on the docket where we're going to be hearing, seeing more court cases. We're going to be covering more of those pieces and seeing what plays out in terms of our ability uh, to convict for the behaviors, right? This is something that's been going on for a while and has been made public because of the use of of video now. I'm wondering at the sense you get from community about are we still on track to keep these changes moving? Are you feeling that folks are starting to burn out um, in terms of the hope that they have for actual changes?
1: I think that people are still hopeful. I do think that it's been a very challenging journey for not just justice, but also change. But I, I do think people are exhausted And hopeful, you know, tired. Uh, Change is a very slow process. Um, uh, Many people thought that we would be further along than what we are. But I I don't think that people have given up. We've seen this fight in Minneapolis uh, about the charter amendment and whether or not the question would be allowed to be on the ballot. And it's been this back and forth thing. And so people aren't giving up. People are acknowledging the resistance that they're actively facing, right? But they're not... They're they're not giving up. They're continuing to combat that resistance and say, we are not going to fold or compromise on the integrity of the change that we want to see. And George Floyd paid a price for that change ultimately, right? And so did Dante Wright. I do think that there there have been some things I've seen, uh, the ABLE training that is being implemented, not just in Minneapolis, but in other uh, police departments across the country where they're going to start trying to train officers on how to intervene if another police officer is using excessive force. That would have never happened had folks all across this country stand up and say something needs to change in our policing departments. Now, by no means am I saying that that is going to fix all of our problems. But also when you look at the fact that the prosecutor who was handling the case of Ahmad Aubrey, his killing in Georgia, she's now facing charges. That is... I. I feel like unprecedented. (laughs) I've never heard of a prosecutor being charged for intervening in in injustice, And so when you see these small steps forward, I think, to accountability, I, I think that it's those small victories that is fueling the hope of those who continue to demand justice and demand change, even though it's such a, a long and, and grueling process. And there's so much resistance along the way. Uh, those who are committed to seeing this change, uh, they're, they're continuing to stand up, continuing to be resilient and res- resourceful and innovative in the way that they advocate for the change, the equitable change that they want to see for our society.
0: That's, that's powerful. And again, it, it underscores the kind of nuanced space that we are. It's one of the reasons why I'm really excited that to have the guests that we have on today, um, Ms. Georgia, your coverage. Helps to keep forward that critical thinking question. My undergraduate degree is in ethnic studies, and so I have I have a real solid place in my heart for those who 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 sit into that critical um, nuance. Dr. Kim Park Nelson is a professor at Winona State University and a teacher, and a professor of ethnic studies and all a whole lot of other things. But you're also uh, an uh, an author who has done some study and some writing on the experience of of, of Korean adoptees. I think in particular in Minnesota, right.
2: Yep. So my research, well, actually, my research project started off as a a research project that focused on the experience of adult Korean adaptees here in Minnesota, but it quickly expanded to other locations as well. And so the research ended up being about um, Korean American adaptees. The research sites were um, here in Minnesota and then in the Pacific Northwest and then also in Seoul, where there's a population of Korean adaptees who returned to Korea to live.
0: So You've heard, you heard, overheard um, me in, in Georgia, uh, just kind of recapping some of the developments this week that are happening right now in this racial reckoning moment. What's, what's coming up for you as you see us, Did you hear us tee up some of those things that are happening?
2: Um, Well, Anthony, I really appreciate your, um, first of all, your own background in ethnic studies and your shout out to ethnic studies programs. Um. Uh, Both at the, you know, they're such important programs because really ethnic studies is the only kind of single location, um, intellectual location, I guess, where like all of us who do ethnic studies, study race. Um, Race is studied in in other disciplines and interdisciplines, but in ethnic studies, that's really kind of the centerpiece of what we do. And so, you know, certainly, um, certainly I was thinking a lot as I was listening to your conversation about um, this problem that Georgia named of resistance and sort of like the slow move forward, the exhaustion that people in our community feel when they've been faced with um, with such devastating um, discrimination and problems for over so many decades. I mean, I think that y'all are talking about um, specifically the exhaustion and the, um, and the fatigue that folks are having here in Minnesota around police killings that we've had just recently. But of course, this is something that that it's a problem that reaches back many, many decades. So what I think about in light of that is what can I do as an educator or what can we do as a community of educators to change that? Because I think that there's this kind of, I mean, I think that it makes sense that there's focus on kind of the um, what's happening in these, um, what's happening in these hearings and these court environments to address, to address these issues in the courts. But, you know, I can't help thinking as, as a, as somebody with a, with a, race and ethnic studies background and who teaches race and ethnic studies you know what would this what would our world look like if more of the american population actually had an educational background in in race and ethnic studies that were would give us some tools to be able to see these issues in a um, in a more complete context and to understand more fully how all of us all of us as citizens and community members and when i say citizen i don't mean Citizen of the United States, I mean citizens of our communities, um, you know, are connected to all of these. To you know, here specifically now, the police killings that have happened um, of of black and brown folks here in Minnesota. You know, I think that there are many people who are like, "Well, I ain't one of those people, so I don't have to worry about this." And of course, nothing could be further from the truth. And so, um, you know, I'm thinking about like, what are we doing as ethnic studies educators in this moment? What are the initiatives that we're um, that we're pushing for and seeing in response in higher education and in education um, at other levels as well to address the issue of of you know giving students tools, giving people tools um, to think more fully um, and maybe more critically about the issues that we're facing as a society and the discrimination that we see really every single day. You know, certainly the 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 state depriving someone of their life um, in a discriminatory situation is, is a is the kind of the most heightened form of that discrimination. But I think that you know, as people of color, we we face discrimination um many, many times every single day.
1: you talk about this intersection of education and race. It makes me think about critical race theory and how that, in in more recent conversations, has been brought forth as a way to start to have these conversations in classrooms. But that too has been widely resisted. And so I'm curious to know your thoughts about critical race theory and if you think that that would be a good vehicle to pursue in order to start having some of these conversations about race in classrooms.
2: Yeah, so the whole kerfuffle around critical race theory um, <laughs> on. is one of these things. <laughs> Come on. is one of these things that um, that you know. Of course, it's an interesting development that's kind of happening in the current moment. And I mean, I guess the way that I see it, I think that like one or two conservatives kind of latched onto this um, and decided to paint a target on it. You know, those folks were successful in in bringing this that specific terminology into the. Into some kind of more broad public debate, though, even though the public, I think, for the most part, doesn't understand what it is, and I don't think that, and I don't think that there's been very much that has been accomplished to enlighten the public about what critical race theory is. I, you know, I, I see, I've seen a lot of discussion and debate about what it's what it's not. Um, I guess I am, I'm a, <laughs> I'm of the, I have a, I'm of the belief that you know, critical race theory is really something that is generally taught. Uh, that's generally taught at, in colleges and universities, it is a, it's sort of a way to, it's a, it's a lens, if you will, to kind of look through um, issues and problems like uplifting race as an issue and race relations as an issue in our society. I, I actually don't think that, you know, though there might be educators and um, K through 12 who have this kind of understanding of the world, in general, I do not think that K through 12 curriculum contains a lot of these types of lessons. You know, as somebody who does teach about race, um, and specifically about kind of the context, the the context of history where races, where race is concerned in the United States, I would I would be fine if this is something if this is an approach that more people took. I do not think it's um, I, don't, I do not think it's particularly dangerous. I think that it's quite important that people have this perspective. And of course, you know, my my big concern in in one of my many communities is. I have many, many colleagues who teach race at the college and university level. And of course, some of those people have been um threatened and attacked because of this, because of this attention that's been given um, to critical race theory. So I feel like that's like not much of a it's not really a very radio friendly answer to your, the, the <laughs> question that you've asked, Georgia. Um I you know, I on one level, I think that de- the debate is ridiculous. I mean, I think that there's I think that there's kind of this attempt to um, create a villain in critical race theory. I think much like um in politics, um, you know, a, a villainy has been created around kind of ideologies of socialism and communism that, you know, though most Americans might not really have a clear understanding of exactly how that system, a system like that might work, there's always there's long been this huge attempt to just if you just slap the like the the socialist sticker on something, then People can kind of broadly understand. Oh, it's bad, um, and so I think that there has been this attempt to kind of villainize critical race theory. And I, and part of me feels like the reason that it worked, it's kind of worked, is because people don't understand what it is. I think that if people did understand what it was, like for instance, if all of the people who are debating this had, had even a single class in ethnic studies, <laughs> they would very be, they would very quickly be able to, um, they would be very quickly be able to kind of deconstruct what that debate is about and. See very clearly, like this is what we're talking about when we say critical race theory. It's this particular way of looking at the world that kind of uplifts and highlights race as a as a divisive issue or as a as a as a category that's been created in order to oppress certain peoples. There's been this attempt to kind of elevate and really mischaracterize critical race theory to be this kind of the a villain right like the bad yeah. guy um that somehow it's like dangerous to children and if children you know have have these dangerous ideas in their heads they're going to turn out bad or something but <laughs>
0: Yeah. This this <laughs> that point right there has been um you know it I was I work with a um a local folk artist named Larry Long he has a program called Elders Wisdom Children's Song and he you, you take you, you have elders in a community come and give their life story to children and then those children take the transcript from that audio and they use it to write a song about that elder's life story and then they sing it in a community wide celebration I mean he's he's you know he's a your quintessential on the Capitol steps he's the brought the the. Uh, Mississippi River Festival here. He's in the style of and and you know he's he's Woody Guthrie and them have have you know uh, and Pete Seeger have kind of taken him under their wing. He's of that ilk, right? He even wrote the state you know with children. He wrote the the state children's song of Alabama, interviewing Rosa Parks. So like this guy has been all over the place. And one of the things he said is during his organizing time, he was organizing at Standing Rock with the with the Freedom Runners there. So he's got his 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 interaction credos is solid right so he was telling his life story in a recent training that we were doing i had him kind of be the elder himself and one of the things he talked about was that they used to send lists ahead of him to the communities where he was doing he was honoring elders from all these different backgrounds like nobody participating had any issue but then he would start to see these little cards being placed on people's car windows and in their homes saying if you see any of these words you need to run to your, you know, in, in your school area, you need to run to your school board and resist every single thing that's connected to them. And there were words like diversity and multiculturalism and, and, um, um, even even culture in some spaces, right? Or civil rights. And it just, the way that he described that organizing and the talking points that were being given around the people to resist in school board meetings is like verbatim what we're seeing in some of the talking point guys that are being disseminated to parents. Um, I got to see, there's a whole... Um, anti-critical race theory, you know, talking point. This is how you disrupt it in your school district um, PDF that people are getting their hands on because you know people are just emailing it out to everybody, right? That this is this is why critical race theory is bad and all these kinds of things. This is what's going to do to your kids, and of course, it completely boxes and mischaracterizes all the points around critical race theory, even some of the statements that are being made. Um, and so, it, you know, it's it's just uncanny to see how how much. Uh, folks have been successful. And I think one of the points, um, uh, reasons that's been successful was actually my my wife made this point to me the other day, you know, you, you get stuck, you get a nice little tight talking point that says, don't like this, be scared of this boogeyman. And that's easy and simple to understand. And then to describe something that's a whole collegiate body of like thinking and discourse and research with authors in many different different places. Like how do you describe with nuance, something like we we now have, and I think as people of color, we we run into this issue all the time, that somebody will say something real simple and and out of pocket and wrong, and in order to kind of contextualize it and, and, and help folks understand why whatever was said doesn't make sense or isn't you know it, it, it is is wrong. You have you have to describe all of this nuance and thinking, and so it's much easier to just wrap your head around this little simple bullet talking point which can run circles around folks who want to use a more critical thinking approach. And so they were always stuck with the, with the extra work when somebody can just lob a grenade in, close the door and doesn't have to make any sense or be grounded in anything real, but because yours took two sentences and mine is going to take a whole level of understanding that folks haven't experienced or had, we're already, it's already in an, an imbalance in the response.
2: Yeah, absolutely, and I mean, and I think that there's, there there is part of me, um, <clears throat> there is part of me, kind of like the activist part of me that I had to admit is like maybe like a little older than the than the ethnic studies, certainly is way older than the ethnic studies professor side of me. Um, my resistance to their resistance is sometimes just to not engage in that ridiculousness um, because. Um, you know, one of the things that I've really been frustrated by, well, my whole life, but like more specifically in the last four or five years, um, I've certainly a tactic that I think became really common during the Trump administration um, is to to really try to control public narrative through lies basically. Um, And, you know, by crafting, by kind of carefully crafting um, real stingers, um within kind of at the center of those lies, I mean, they become like this inflammatory speech um, that is easily repeated and, you know, like often uh, often retweeted and rebroadcast um, because it is so inflammatory. <laughs> um, you know, I, I do feel like there was there, we're at this really uh, distressing time um, in our history. Um, where like the, like the smell test doesn't even matter anymore. Like if something just stinks like a lie that isn't, that doesn't necessarily qualify. Um, that doesn't actually just, that doesn't really disqualify it from being, um, something that's discussed as if it was true. (laughs) And so, um, you know, I am very frustrated by this total mischaracterization of, of critical race theory, um, as something that it's not and then we have to debate that as if it was as if that claim was true um and so that's very frustrating to me i i mean i think that there's also kind of another way to kind of think through that debate about critical race theory which is to is to be either even kind of more reductive than the folks who are kind of trying to start um kind of create controversy around the existence of critical race theory is to you know and in some ways, um, you know, the reason that um, the reason that debate around critical race theory was it successfully became a debate, um, is because I think that even conservatives understand they can't just say that race doesn't matter in the United States in this moment. Um, but in reality, uh, you know, I think that because now critical race theory is being attached to school children, which really doesn't make any sense. Um, there's, I think that the, you know, in my mind, like the question that we need to ask back is should race be taught to children? And I think that most people in, um, in our current society are going to say yes, on some level it should be. Um, and that's really what the conversation should be about. Um, of course there are people who do not think that it should be, but you know, as the as the United States becomes um, a more uh, racially diverse society, as we become a more pluralistic society, I think that that um, I think that, that uh rather nostalgic or let's put our heads in the sand approach towards um, the the racial and cultural landscape in the United States is just becomes like less and less viable. I mean, it was never—I think it was never a, a, a perspective that really made sense. I mean, the United States has always been a deeply pluralistic uh, place, um, but you know, as demographics have continued have continued to change, um, and they are continuing to change, it makes less and less sense, even from kind of a populist viewpoint, to have that perspective.
1: Absolutely. So you authored a book called Invisible Asians, where you researched and amplified the experiences of Korean Americans as well as Asian Americans. And so with you having so much background and knowledge of not just your own personal experience, but so many others in this nation, how were you impacted by the increase in Asian hate crimes? And do you feel like the legislation that was brought forth to address those hate crimes uh, is really... Really going to deal with those crimes on a systemic level.
2: Oh, so thanks for asking that question. I mean, certainly that's been um, it's been something that's been very much on my mind for the last year, and I think that there are some parallels between. Um, I mean, obviously the situation for Asian Americans who are um, subjected to just racial discrimination and certainly violence, and hate crimes. Um, there's big differences between what's happening to us and what's happening in the Black community in the United States, but there also are some parallels. Um, Anti-Asian hate is something that has a very, very long history, um, just like the racial discrimination against so many of our other brothers and sisters um, who aren't Asian in the United States. And so this is not a new, it's not a new thing. Um, But at the same time, you know, I think that out of this, um, out of this, Particularly difficult moment that we're in. Um, I'm hoping that there can be some cha- some transformative change. Um, you know, you kind of you kind of hope that everything that's happened in our society, whether that be in um, here in Minnesota, whether that be um, police violence against black black men and other uh, black and brown folks, um, whether it be uh, hate crimes against Asian Americans. There's so many things you kind of hope that. All of that layered on the pandemic that we are going through will motivate people to look for hope by supporting change. Um, And I think that that's something that's that's something that's like you kind of hold your breath on it. And it's very concerning because sometimes you really see that, right? You see people sort of like responding. You always you want to hope. Just as human beings, that humanity will respond to our most devastating, heartbreaking situations, by um, amplifying the, our kindness and our compassion on humanity. Sometimes you see that, it's really beautiful, and it gives you sort of like the energy to move on. Sometimes you see the opposite. You see you see people organizing um, organizing further acts of hate and um, amplifying further acts of hate. Maybe because they feel like, oh, like this pop, you know, this group of people is is down. And so now is the best time to take them out. I don't know what the thinking is there. Um to my my own experience as a as an Asian American, I mean, that's been really interesting for me because I've been so locked down during this pandemic that I actually am experiencing less discrimination in my life than I have in the past. You know, part of that is because of my own kind of like health and safety protocols that I Came up with as a person who um, has some underlying health conditions where I'm particularly um, I'm particularly vulnerable should I contract COVID and i of course I'm very privileged to be able to you know that I'm in a, that I'm in a profession that has made some some room for me to be able to do that I certainly have been witness to to many many uh, accounts of anti Asian violence that have happened uh, all over the country and also here in Minnesota. And I mean it's interesting because I've also had people in my community reach out to me and say I'm concerned about you. I'm concerned that I'm concerned that if you that if you get caught out somewhere that something's going to happen to you, which is actually something that that's the first time. I mean, I turned 50 this year, like that's I've lived in Minnesota pretty much my whole life. And that's the first time people in my people in my community actually reached out to me and said I'm concerned about you because you're Asian. And that and that if you you know that if you go to the grocery store that you might get that you might be targeted that you might be
0: um,
2: that you might become a victim in in this um, kind of current wave of anti Asian violence. Like there's big connections between the existence of of the of the pandemic and kind of the the racist narrative that's been spun around the pandemic that somehow Asians are responsible for um, for COVID-19, which again, like super frustrating, like absolutely racist, but also completely not new. The, one of the big, uh, one of the big stereotypes about Asians in the United States is, has always been, um, has always been like, oh, they carry disease. And so, you know, that's not, sadly, that's not new. I mean, there's about a hundred year history of that thinking here in the United States. Um, and so again, I mean, I think that as a, As a researcher and educator um, uh, within kind of the field of Asian American studies, um, on the one hand, and I mean, I feel like in some ways we're kind of starting to repeat ourselves, or at least I'm starting to repeat myself. It's kind of like balancing the understanding, like this has been going on for decades and decades and decades, and having that kind of historical context to kind of think about as we strategize, you know, what do we do for our communities now?
0: That's cyclical. well, that that cyclical nature has been one of the recurring themes that we see from the talking points that are given out to the tropes that are used to even I mean we 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 had covered here um in many different pl- in 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 Georgia has covered too. Um, our own uh, Ramsey County Sheriff. So I know you're in Hennepin County, um, but in Ramsey County, where, where where I live, we 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 had to experience the story of um, that sheriff making a reference to saying, you know, on a, on this ride along show thing he does on Facebook outside of his jurisdictional area. Like like, there's police force already there in St. Paul. Why are you riding around? But anyway, um, the. Um, the statement that he made was, you know, back in, back in the, in, you know, back in the day, we would have just told him to get out of town by sundown and then feign cluelessness to, to racially restrictive covenants in and, and the practice of James Lowen in his book called sundown, you know, you know, writes about sundown towns, you know, as if there isn't like, we don't understand that. So the cyclical nature of all of these talking points and all these experiences has been um, very interesting to cover throughout this whole time.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And so, I mean, I think it's like so important for us to both know what is recurring here and what is, you know, what's essentially like part of our racist history and really like part of racial tropes that we've been kind of, that we've been placed in involuntarily for um, for many, many generations as people of color in the United States versus what's happening now and what actually is new. Like, the, because I think that there is, <clears throat> I think that the... Um, you know, kind of going back to your question, georgia, the the problem of anti-asian violence in this moment, like there are there are things that there are specific nuances that are kind of right now. Um, I think that there are um, I think that you know it i don't I think it's a little bit reductive to say, oh, it's just a recurrence of history. I mean, even though, it is, but like every recurrence has its own nuance, right? Like every recurrence has its own context. And I think it's important for us to understand that as well. Um, but yeah, this idea that you know, somehow this is novel. And um, you know, I think one of the, I mean, I know that this was an attempt to sort of um, be in solidarity and be supportive of, of Asian Americans who are experiencing essentially terror, like anti-racist, anti-Asian terror um, that this is un-American. Well, that's just not true. I mean, anti-Asian racism is super American. I mean, it's been going on, it's been going on, um, and the, you know, for, for such a long time under the rhetoric of it's American to hate Asians because they're not American. Like there's this kind of nationalist ideology around that's kind of baked into anti-Asian hate in the United States. That's, um, that that's that is really tied to the nation, and so I think that in, if you do understand that history of anti Asian discrimination and violence in the United States, it's actually quite tone deaf, kind of at the best, um, but at the worst, like quite insulting to Asian Americans to say like, "Oh, this is un American." It's like aspirationally, it's un American. And w-
1: what have you in in your work identified? as some solutions that we can incorporate in our day-to-day personal lives, our professional lives? Uh, You know, maybe it's on a political level. What, What have you identified as some solutions to the hate, the discrimination, the racism that is deeply embedded into the fabric of our nation?
2: So, you know, as an educator, I mean, I'm sure that neither of you will be surprised to hear that I feel like one of the solutions is education that um, that, you know, Anthony so beautifully lifted up um, as he as he kind of introduced me um, just a few minutes ago that, you know, to have an understanding of our of the United States as a racially segregated, racially divided place is an important lens through which to see more clearly like the the problems that we're having around race right now. Um, so few people, so few people actually have that kind of educational background, whether it be formal or informal. And I don't think that the only solution is sort of instituting instituting these types of requirements in schools. I think that there's many, many, many other ways of learning. Uh, You know, I actually do some, um, I actually have been fortunate enough to do some work um, with the local Asian American organization, CAL. One of the conversations that I've had is how how much better do you think the organizing work we're doing as around Asian American community building, how much better could that organizing be If the key organizers had ever taken a class in Asian American studies, which most of them have not. And it's not because I'm sure it's not because they're not interested. It's because they didn't have the opportunity to take anything like that while they were in school. You know, to have that have that uh, kind of background understanding of what your community has been through and how people outside your community have have. Historically responded to you, I think is such an important. It's such an important building block in certainly in movement building. You know, you're not concerned with movements and activism. Um, it's such an important of kind of just being able to understand the world that you're in. I think one of the things that we've really suffered as communities of people in the color of the United States is that we've really had to fight to get any of our own history. If you happen to be in a community or in a family who has been willing to, who's been given access to that knowledge and that learning, and they're willing to, to pass that on to you, in a lot of ways, it's really sad, but you're one of the lucky ones. I think that so many of us have been cut off from our histories and have been cut off from our um. From our uh, the experience of our own communities, um, and been cut off from kind of a broader understanding of how we're connected to everything else. So many. I mean, this is something that's like you know very particular to my research within the within the Korean American community, um, the Korean American adoptee community. Um, and this is something that I felt myself as a young Korean adoptee growing up in St. Paul. You really are. You really are. You really believe based on your own life experience that you're the only one. And as a and I think that many, many people of color feel this way. You know, they end up in a even if they even if they have an intact family where there's other people of color in the family. So often, especially here in the Upper Midwest, like we end up in a predominantly white school, we end up in a predominantly white workplace. Like you, you are made to feel like you're the only one. One of the things that I really thought about a lot as I was as I was researching my own Korean and uh, Korean adoptee community here in Minnesota and other places is this idea that racial isolation is actually a form of racial discrimination. If you can be isolated, so you are made to feel like you're the only one, there is no way for you to connect into a discourse of of human rights, basically. Because there's um, there's this idea, like whatever it is that you're experiencing that's bothering you, is just bothering you. It's not systemic. It's just like you like there's either there's something wrong with you or there's something particular about you and i think that's something that a lot of people of color here in minnesota have to wrestle with and it's it's very very difficult and so anything that we can do to plug back into our to our, our communities and to share knowledge among our communities i think is is helpful and i mean it's a ama- mate it's been it's amazing to me i mean it is and it isn't right it's amazing to me how difficult that can be to do but on the other hand, I'm, it's not amazing to me because, you know, the, the like white supremacy is written all over and you can, it's very apparent in all of our structures and our educational structure and our, um, our government structure and a lot of our community structures that specifically prevent people from being able to do that.
0: It's
1: so interesting to hear you reflect on that experience um, because I I actually, I have an uncle on my mother's side, so I'm biracial. My mom's side of the family is uh, German and and Polish, and my grandma and grandfather on my mother's side adopted uh, their youngest son from Korea. And I think around the time when he was about 40, 45, he started exploring more uh, about where he came from and who his birth parents were. And uh, he even changed his name um, to reflect uh, his his birth parents' last name. Um, and, it, you know, it was for me being biracial, it was the first time that that side of the family really had to reckon with this conversation around race. And although they intended to help him and to, you know, raise him as their own, in in some ways they unintentionally forced him to conform to their culture and their their norms. And uh, they didn't really know how to introduce him to things that were authentic to him, you know? And so, yeah, it's just interesting. I, I feel like there's not a lot of spaces in dominant society that have been created to have these conversations about adoptees uh, trying to find their identity because yes while there is something very significant to say about people who adopt children and you know the love and care that they provide for them is is amazing that still does not allow that child to connect with their natural identity um especially if the uh, adopter the The parents who have adopted that child are of a different race. So it's just very fascinating to hear you uh, talk about that and and reflect even on my own family's experience in seeing my uncle trying to to find himself after so many years of being raised a specific way. and uh, it was very freeing for him, liberating for him to detach from some of those things that did not feel authentic to to him.
2: Sure. I mean, I think that there's so many parallels. It's interesting because, you know, a lot of adoptees that I talk to um, feel that they that they aren't living kind of like a an Asian American life, that they're somehow like outside, outside the racial formation of Asian American um, because they were adopted. So they didn't really have, they, you know, they didn't have access to all of that. But That experience of, you know, that experience of racial isolation that a lot of adoptees feel, I think, is very Asian-American. And I think it's very American. I mean, I think it's a a very American experience that a lot of people of color experience. And um, I think that, you know, I mean, it's not surprising to me, Georgia, that your uncle was the age that he was before he really did a deep dive into all of this. Um, I think that, you know, for a lot of adoptees, it's very intimidating to, um, to do that exploratory work. Um, sometimes it's because there's sort of overt uh, opposition to, to an adoptee doing that within the family, but sometimes it's not overt. Sometimes, you know, I think that there's a lot of adoptees are kind of um, taught to believe um, uh, implicitly or explicitly that if you if you um, if you want to find your your Korean parents or your birth parents, it means you're rejecting your adoptive family. Sometimes that's true, but not always. Sometimes it's, you know, just as just more often, it's actually not true. Um, And, you know, I think that um, I think that there's a really important lesson around um, what gets centered um, for uh, to people who are feeling outside. Um, I think that you know, even that, that that response of for an adoptee to search for their family or their birth family, the biological family, there's a rejection of their adoptive family. Most adoptees who do that search, it's actually not about their adoptive family at all. It has nothing to do with their adoptive family. They're just trying to find something else about themselves. Um, and, I, you know, so I think that it's interesting that there's a, um, that oftentimes there's this response that somehow it's centered, you know, that search is actually centered back on the needs of the adoptive family which I think is really, really similar to the entire assimilative, you know, like so many of the assimilative processes that happen around race in the United States. Um, you know, for, for an African-American person to have a strong Black identity by a lot of white people is considered to be a rejection of, of Americanness. ness um, As if, like, whiteness is something that is um, is so inherent to American identity and American existence that if you just choose to not identify as white and you choose to do that loudly, that somehow that that constitutes um, an outsideness or a, a an opposition to, um, and again sometimes it does, but I think more often it has nothing to do with you know like an embrace of your of your identity um, and having pride in your identity as a person of color. For me, like that has nothing to do with um, that has nothing to do with how. White folks might characterize that, you know, that somehow like anti, anti-white anti racism, which I actually don't even think is a thing, but a lot of them do. Um, you know, I think that pride in one's own heritage is just that it has nothing to do with, um, with this population of people that maybe has lovingly or much more hostily tried to assimilate you.
0: Sorry. There's so many places for us to go and we never have enough time. And we always have this feeling, um, but as we close, we always, because part of our goal here is to not just get a sense of how folks are in community and unpacking some of these nuanced issues as we look at um, this current moment of racial reckoning in Minnesota, but also to check in with members of our community about how they are experiencing this moment. And so this question uh, that we ask all of our guests, how are you being you in this moment? So 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 given all that we've talked about all the all the things that we're facing day to day and having to encounter and unpack and critique and 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 break apart and think about and and mobilize around um how are you being you how is how is Dr. Kim Park Nelson taking care of of self in this moment of racial reckoning we'll start with you and then we'll ask the same question to Georgia and myself
2: okay that's cool i'm glad that you guys do that um how am i being me i think that um I think maybe the truest way for me to answer that in this particular moment is I'm still fighting the fight, and um, you know I've definitely had some I've had some ups and downs um, in the last year, um, partly because we're in a global pandemic, like partly because of um, all of the all of the events and all of the pain um, and all the loss that I've witnessed um, around the death of George Floyd. I actually live in Minneapolis, in the in the Third police precinct. And so I've had kind of a front row seat to um to everything that's happened here in my own community, which has been devastating and alarming and hopeful and sad and kind of all of the things. And I mean, there have been times during all of this when I really felt like I can't do this anymore. I just need to I need to stop engaging. Um, but right now, today, um, Anthony, in this moment, you got me on a good day and I'm I'm still down for the fight. And I feel like that's That's the thing that actually gives me the most hope when, in myself, when, you know, for myself, it's like if something bad can happen and then you can, I can kind of parlay that into more fuel for the fight. That's, that's the thing that gives me,
0: that's what takes me to my happy place. Thank you. Thank you. Miss Georgia, how are you being you in this moment?
1: I am being me in this moment by continuing to tell the stories that change the narrative that amplify our community in a way that amplifies our resilience and our creativity and uh, the love.
0: You know, for me in this moment, at the time of this recording, I'm two and a half weeks out from ordination in the African Methodist Episcopal Church officially. I'm licensed to preach, but I'll be reverend soon. And what I'm finding is my world is shifting to trying to really push and carve out space for us to be wrong. Um, I'm, I'm finding myself in this current moment being me by really resisting this urge to have when we're held accountable for what we say, do, think, and the consequences of our choices, um, the next thing for me um, needs, is, is, is fighting for right now a space to be able to make the correction or the adjustment. And I'm finding so much, so much right now that we aren't giving each other and we aren't as a society allowing space for the correction after the accountability is, is, is demanded, right? And I'm using accountability versus some of the other buzzwords per, per our earlier conversation. Um, and so I think that's where I'm at right now. And, and it's an interesting space. And I think it has to do with the ordination because I'm being called to, to be in a space where I don't get to throw, I, you know, I, I have to be in a space of creating the room for us to be able to change, to be able to change mind, to be able to change direction, to be able to do some critique um, and not be afraid of that critique because it might end our career or a relationship forever. If a relationship ends because of one correction of accountability, um, that's not something super egregious and like destructive to a person's human being and psyche, um, then that wasn't really a relationship in the first place. And so I think we are are, are in a space right now of, of, I'm in a space right now of trying to really work on the relational and it feels, it just feels damn good. Dr. Park Nelson, I'm so glad you were able to come and join us, um, bearing witness to, to help let us check in with you and to get some of your wonderful insight um, as a as a professor of ethnic studies. Um, we always end the show with our a, a quote from our favorite uh, community healer. So I'm going to kick it over to Miss Georgia to close us out.
1: In the words of Dr. Joy Lewis, "May the revolution be healing." This is bearing witness. This has been Bearing Witness with Anthony and Georgia, a part of the racial reckoning project, The Arc of Justice, a journalism project created and supported by Ampers, Diverse Radio for Minnesota's communities, KMOJ Radio and the Minnesota Humanities Center with support from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund.